Praise the Lord. Thank you, Marguerite, for, for reading. And good morning, church. It is such a good morning to be with you on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend. And it is certainly a great privilege to gather and worship all together as, as one body. And it's also good that we remember the great cost at which this freedom is granted to us today. Um, this is a wonderful passage, and I want us to pause and let us pray so we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. So would you pray with me? Father, the events of this week remind us ever more acutely that our world is terribly broken. It is a place full of suffering and pain, full of tears that are not easily wiped away. Lord, we recognize that our world doesn't simply need an adjustment, but it needs to be made new. Therefore, we look to you this morning to give us hope that a new world is coming, a world without crying or pain, a world where we will live with you in all your glory. And so we ask this morning for your Holy Spirit to cause this word I was just read to come alive to us today. Would you give us faith to believe what we cannot see and give us the strength to finish the race until we see our Savior face to face? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Things are not the way they ought to be. In a world that is so divided, I think this is a statement that everyone can agree on. The reality that our world is broken and in need of serious change is evident to all. And that is especially true after this week's horrific events and the global tragedies of the past two years. And while there may be a consensus that something is wrong with the world, the disagreements begin when you start to discuss the reasons for the brokenness. And the solutions to try to end or at least mitigate the suffering that seems to never cease. When faced with the horrors that happen in this world, we naturally will look to the people that we feel are in charge for answers. Yet time after time, we realize that the ones who are in charge are also broken themselves. Therefore, when faced with such a great evil and so few answers, we naturally look to God. And then we ask ourselves, well, if God is ultimately in charge of the universe, how do we reconcile what is happening on earth with his character? As we ponder this question, I think we can be tempted to conclude that maybe something is broken with God. We start to think maybe God is unfeeling towards our pain, or maybe he's unable to help us in our pain, or maybe He's not there at all. I think even for the most mature Christians, uh, we've experienced questions of doubt like this when faced with the brokenness in the world, especially when the sufferings of this world don't just show up on our news feeds, but they show up in our homes, in our hearts. And we ask, is God really in control? And if he is, how can he truly be good when the sufferings of this present world seem to have no end? The Christians in the first century uh, 
were surely tempted to ask very similar questions as they experienced the great suffering under Roman persecution and were even tempted uh, by those who claimed to know God to forsake the God that, that was first preached to them by the apostles. And amid their suffering and confusion, we see that God was not silent, but gave the apostle John a message to deliver to the suffering churches and by extension to us today to hold fast to the God that was delivered to them to the very end. And this message is found in the book of Revelation. In this book, God in his mercy, he peels back the curtain of heaven to show a glimpse of what is true and most ultimate reality. To encourage his people that even though evil and suffering rages on, God is still sovereign. He is seated on his throne, and he is certainly not indifferent to evil or powerless to stop it. In this vision, God shows that his victory over evil has already been secured by the blood of the Lamb, and that in his time, no evil will go unpunished, all suffering will come to an end, and right now, he is preparing a new heavens and a new earth. And all those who persevere in faith, all those who overcome by the blood of the Lamb, will live in this new world with God forever. Brothers and sisters, my hope this morning as we meditate on this vision of the new heavens and the new earth that, that you would trust that God is going to make all things new. And with the hope of this world to come, that you would be encouraged that today to live as citizens of that coming kingdom and that you would persevere until your faith is finally made sight. Now, as you've noticed from uh, the reading that Marguerite just, just did, the book of Revelation is unlike most books in the Bible. Uh, the reason it may seem so confusing to us at times is because it's part of a genre of Scripture uh, called apocalyptic literature. It's a genre we don't really have uh, with us today. Uh, the books of Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others contain a lot of this type of, of literature in them. And it's a genre that was used to give hope to God's people that God was still good, and that his promises were still true, even if it didn't feel like it. And this type of literature draws heavenly from uh, Jewish symbols and images in order to describe something that is truly indescribable. So instead of direct instructions or commands like we're used to in other genres of, of, of the Bible, uh, God reveals the qualities of the new heavens and the new earth through vivid and emotive images uh, and metaphors. Thinking a way of describing this, I think the, one of the most helpful ways is if you think of Revelation 21 as one big, huge painting with massive amounts of, of detail, uh, and when you first look at it, you would maybe describe it in, in one way, but as you stare at it a little longer and maybe another portion of the painting, you may describe it in, in another way as you see further detail that the artist is using. So this book and this chapter has layers upon layers of detail, and Sometimes the metaphors, maybe you notice, are like paint on a canvas, and they are kind of run together. Um, but they all contribute to the whole painting, or in our case, the message that is being delivered. So therefore, this morning, I won't be working verse by verse, but rather kind of picture by picture that we see. Furthermore, it's important to note uh, that since there are so many layers of complexity to this vision, there are, there are a wide range of interpretations, faithful Christians, uh, have had to understand uh, this vision. 
So for the sake of time, I'm going to do my best to stay out of, of some of the weeds and kind of stay somewhat uh, at a high level to help us identify five key features of what this new heavens and the new earth will be like for God's people. Five key features. And so what will that new heavens and the new earth be like? In the new heavens and the new earth will experience five things. God's perfect place, God's perfect peace, God's perfect people, God's perfect provision, and finally, God's perfect presence. We'll work through all five of those this morning. First, let's look at God's perfect place. Look at verse 1 with me again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I think many of us grew up uh, with cartoons or pictures that depicted heaven, maybe as a perpetual floating uh, on clouds, maybe playing harps, maybe we had some wings or something. And these pictures uh, maybe made us a little bit uneasy about our eternity, rightfully so. Uh, but in contrast, here in this chapter and throughout the testimony of the Scriptures, a future heaven, as we've been calling it, our future home will be a place on earth. And we see in verse 1 that it won't be the same experience that we have on earth today, Praise the Lord for that, because it will be a new earth. We love new things, right? I love new things. We love the smell of a new car, the feel of a new carpet, the look of a new shirt that fits perfectly. You don't really get the same feeling when you buy a used car or you wear a hand-me-down shirt, do you? It doesn't, doesn't feel the same. Well, friends, the world that is to come will not be like a used car, which is with a new paint job that was handed down to you but rather the new heavens and the new earth, they'll be brand new. New not just to you, but new to all of creation, never seen before. Now, I don't think this means that everything in the world, this new world, will be totally unfamiliar. Uh, as Pastor Tommy talked about last week, our new glorified bodies that we'll get, that we'll receive on the last day, We'll have some resemblance with our old bodies. We'll still maintain our identity, and I think we'll be able to recognize one another. Yet at the same time, our bodies will be fundamentally different. We need a new imperishable bodily dwelling that will fit with our new eternal dwelling that God will bring about. And so I think it's right for us to think similarly about the new heavens and the new earth. The things on earth now that are holy, that are good, I think we will recognize in eternity. But everything that is unholy and broken will be gone. Therefore, our forever home will resemble in one sense our reality on earth, but it'll be dramatically transformed. For the passage tells us, right, that the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Our world doesn't just need a touch-up. It needs to undergo a cataclysmic transformation, an even greater transformation than what occurred at the flood in Noah's day. A transformation that leaves no room for improvements. It will be perfect. I think we, we often throw around that word perfect a little too flippantly sometimes about things that are not necessarily perfect. Maybe you remember looking for your first home or your dream home and finding that house and it's like it's in the perfect location. It's got the perfect neighborhood, the perfect school, the perfect kitchen. It's the perfect size for our family. Then fast forward a few years and that perfect home's got electrical issues. Or the kitchen doesn't sparkle the same as it used to, and signs of imperfection are, are everywhere. Friends, the new heavens and the new earth will truly be perfect. 
never needing future renovations, never needing upkeep. It will be forever perfect. Look back with me, though, at verse 1, at the end of verse 1, and you may have wondered why in this perfect world there's no sea. To you, there may be nothing more perfect than a fishing expedition on the open water. Well, I don't think this means that there will be no bodies of water in our forever home, since later we see in the same chapter that there's a description of a river. Rather, to the original hearers of this book, the sea was known as a great place of chaos and death. They saw the sea as a great physical threat and also a great spiritual threat. In the book of Daniel, the four beasts that opposed God emerge out of the sea. And just in the chapter before, uh, chapter 21, chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, we see the sea is known as the place of the dead. Therefore, a place with no sea communicated that in God's perfect place there is no death, not even the threat of death, either spiritual or physical. In God's perfect place, as we see, there will be no more crying, no more suffering, not even the possibility of pain, for in God's perfect place, and when God is present, nothing imperfect can remain. In other words, in God's perfect place, we will experience God's perfect peace. Which brings us to our second point. In the new heavens and the new earth, we'll experience God's perfect peace. Look at verse 2. And then I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now jump down to verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates of the names, the tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. We see here that one of the main ways in uh, pictures that the Apostle John describes what he has seen in this vision is that of a city coming out of the heaven. Now, you may not think of cities being a place of peace or protection. For many of us, we might think cities are places that are the least safe and secure, right? The more people that are in the city, the more dangerous it is. Well, not so in this city. This city is a holy city, a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem in, in ancient Israel was where the king lived and where the temple was. It was the city of great King David and Solomon, who once ruled in peace and security for God's people. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, the, the Old Testament states, long for the day when the new King David would come to rebuild Jerusalem with its former, and restore its former glory. Yet when Jesus, the son of David, came, he did not come to rebuild Jerusalem from the ground up with materials of the earth, but rather from heaven down through the proclamation of the gospel. And now here in Revelation 21, we see the completion of Christ's kingdom that Jesus inaugurated his first coming. It's described, uh, John sees it, the city as emanating the glory of the Lord, described with dazzling jewels that sparkle and shine. We also see in verse 12 that the city has high walls and with gates. 
Now, walls and gates might not give our modern ears the same sense of, you know, peace and protection that they did in the first century. You know, we may think, well, just take a little helicopter, whoop, we'll go right over the wall. Um, but no, in the ancient world, uh, a city's primary protection was its wall. The stronger and higher the wall, the safer you felt from potential attacks. And the description of the walls and the size of the walls here, I think, are meant to, in some sense, convey in the utter safety of God's people who are represented by the apostles of the Lamb and the names of the tribes of Israel. But something interesting, interesting about these gates, about these walls, look at the verse 33, or 23. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb, and its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So John tells us, that there are high walls and there are gates to this city, but there's no need for them, right? There's no need for them, for the gates are never shut. Why? Because there's no reason for them to be shut or to be locked for nothing unclean or no one detestable or anything false could ever enter it, for the whole earth is God's holy city. Just imagine with me that you're getting ready uh, in the morning and uh, you open the door that goes into your garage, and you look, and the garage door is open. We've had that feeling before, haven't we? Yes, we have. What emotions run through you in that moment? Right? Maybe a little fear, a little panic, checking if things are there, you know. Yeah, maybe feeling a little exposed uh, because all of your possessions in that garage have been exposed to anyone who might want to explore in the night. Well, friends, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is, there is no fear. There is no panic. For we will always live in perfect peace because evil has been banished in the city of God with no chance of ever penetrating its walls or walking through its gates. But it's important that we see that our perfect peace and protection does not come from thick walls or gates, but it comes from the presence of God. Early in Revelation, Revelation 7 says this, He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. We experience perfect safety, perfect protection, because God is with us. And he will dwell with his people. And friends, uh, I want you to hear this. As secure as heaven will be, this peace and security you have now for your souls who have faith in Christ Jesus. For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The new heavens, the new earth will be God's perfect place where we will experience God's perfect peace and we will be with God's perfect people. One of the reasons this holy city is free from danger and we're willing to keep the gates open is because the people who are there are perfect. We never have to be skeptical of people's motives or wary of their hidden intentions for all of the people that will be there will radiate with the glory of the Lord without spot or blemish. 
I wonder if you notice uh, that John kind of mixes his metaphors as he describes both the city and the people in the new heavens and the new earth. Look at verse 21, uh, chapter 21, verse 2. It says, Then I saw a holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in verse 9 and 10, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Is John confused? Is he mixing in? What's, what's going on here? I don't think he's confused, but I think he's doing, he's layering the descriptions and drawing from themes seen throughout biblical history. And here we see the, right, the image of a city, but also now the image of marriage. And the theme of marriage is one that is so important um, that it, and so ancient that it stretches as far back to the beginning of creation. Genesis 1 and 2, we read about how God gave mankind the gift of marriage, and God himself officiates the first wedding between the first man and woman. And then throughout the Old Testament, the theme of marriage is continued. God is pictured as the faithful, covenant-keeping husband and the people of Israel are described as an unfaithful bride, a bride who breaks her covenant with God and commits spiritual adultery with other gods. If you ever read the book of Hosea, it's a vivid portrayal of this relationship, of God's redeeming love for his unfaithful people. Well, this image continues on in, in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see that the gift of marriage is actually and ultimately meant to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the faithful bridegroom, and the church is his bride. Jesus loves his bride so much that he lays down his life for her. And Jesus' purpose in giving up himself for his bride is to save her and to make her ready to inherit the full blessings of being united to him. Look on the screen as I read Ephesians chapter 5, a little section of this. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. And now we see in Revelation, both in chapter 19 and 21, we see that Christ has accomplished what he gave himself up for. We see his bride, the church, made holy. Jesus purchased people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, his bride, and through his death on the cross. And now in the last day, the redemption of his bride is complete for all to see. In Revelation 21, we see the perfect union between God and man that will never be put asunder. One of the great joys I have as a pastor uh, here is to officiate weddings, and I've gotten to officiate uh, several weddings in the last few years. And one of my favorite parts of the wedding is the moment all the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, they're all, they're all set up here, and then there is a pause, There's a little moment of pause, the music kind of stops a little bit. And then the church doors, they, the back doors, they swing open, right? Triumphant music is played and everyone stands up. Why? Because they want to get a glimpse of the bride, right? Because she's dressed in all white and she's adorned with beauty for her husband. 
And when you stand as close to the groom as I do on those days, I can, I can assure you and confirm that everything he, he's doing everything he can from falling over uh, or, or crying because uh, he knows how lucky he is and how beautiful his bride looks on that day. Brothers and sisters, when we witness moments like this, our minds are meant to and ought to be sent to this heavenly picture. We ought to remember that one day God is going to present us, his people, as a pure bride for Christ without spot or blemish. On that last day, we will be made perfect, both in body and soul. And we will share an intimacy with our God that we have never experienced before. Friends, is this the way you think about marriage? Is this the way you think about your marriage? Do you realize that your marriage is meant to tell a story, a story about the marriage that is to come? Husbands, do you realize that the ultimate goal of your marriage is not to make your wife happy, but to lay down your life for her so that she would be holy? Wives, do you realize that your adornment is not something that you can purchase from this world, but comes from Jesus, who is slowly and surely adorning the hidden person of your heart with an imperishable beauty that will one day be put on display for all the world to see? What story is your marriage telling? Brothers and sisters, whether you're married or not, our hope in this life is not the marriages of earth. For Jesus says in the resurrection, neither will they marry or be given in marriage. And so we know that earthly marriage is not to fulfill all our hopes and all our desires, but it is just a tiny picture of the intimacy and love that God's people will experience with him when he has perfected his bride, the church, completely. Now we see in this passage that not everyone will enjoy perfect union with Christ in God's presence on the last day, but woefully many will experience perfect judgment away from the presence of the Lord. We see that in verses 7 and 8. It says this, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The idea of eternal paradise with God is, I think it's difficult, right, for our minds to, to grasp. And even more difficult is the thought of eternal punishment. But Jesus and the testimony of God's word does not mince words about the eternal destination of those who have rebelled against God and those who have not believed the gospel. For their portion is eternal judgment away from the presence of the Lord. And this makes us squirm a little bit. It's hard to hear. But remember, heaven would not be heaven if God let even a little sin in. Sin must be dealt with. And that is why the free offer of the gospel is so sweet. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and none of us have earned our right to be with God. None of us have cleaned ourselves up that heaven might accept us. And that is why Jesus, the spotless limb of God, had to die in our place. 
taking the punishment for our sins as they deserved, so that all who trust in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus takes our sin-soaked clothes and dresses us, takes those off and dresses us in fine linen, bright and pure clothes that are fit for eternity in heaven. Friend, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ, this, this is good news for you today because guess what? This judgment has not come yet. There is still time for you to turn from your sins and to be part of God's bride. And you know, as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, that the Lord, the reason why he, maybe he's waiting for this coming judgment is that the Lord is being patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Friend, today could be the day of salvation. So do not harden your hearts in unbelief, but come to Jesus and be made new. But for all those of us who are here who have trusted in Christ, who have begun this process of being made like our Savior by grace, our response to this final judgment, this second death, is not one of fear, but rather we should be have one of uh, should be a sense of urgency that we should have to share both the good news uh, of Jesus with those who don't know, but also eager to help one another persevere in the faith. Right, the fight of faith on this earth is is hard. It's hard when the world looks the way it does, when our marriages start to struggle, when the longings of our hearts go unfulfilled. It's difficult, friends. We need one another. We need God's people to remind us that when we doubt, that there is a greater reality that is coming, and that there is no, no place, nowhere else on this earth will you be able to find a sure and steady anchor for your souls than in Jesus, your faithful bridegroom. John has given us a, a picture of God's perfect place a place with God's perfect peace, living with God's perfect people. And next we'll see that God's perfect people will experience God's perfect provision. Look at, verse, uh, look at chapter 22 now, verses 1 to 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on each side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we've seen a picture of a city, a new earth. We've seen a picture of a bride adorned for a husband. And now we have a picture of a garden. And in this garden, you have a river in it. And not just any river, but the river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And I believe this river represents the eternal life that God's people will experience with him. You may remember the, the water that Jesus offers to the woman at the well in John 4. He, he said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will be coming in him, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I think the connection is clear that this water flowing from the throne is the eternal life forever satisfying God's people. And furthermore, in this garden, there is a tree of life that does not just bear one kind of fruit yearly, but 12 kinds of fruit monthly. Now, I don't think uh, this means that all we're going to be eating is, is fruit in heaven, 
Um, but rather, this part of the vision is highlighting the fullness and completeness of God's provision and the eternal life God's people will enjoy with him. Uh, this garden imagery is, I hope, I'm sure you caught on to it, uh, ought to bring our minds back to the gar- another garden, the Garden of, of Eden. Uh, we read in Genesis 2, 9 through 10, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. I think the connection, right, is clear. But did you notice what is missing in this new garden? No more is the tree of, is there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For that tree was off limits to Adam and Eve. Yet in this new eternal garden, there is nothing off limits to God's people. There are no bad apples in this garden. For this is a better Eden, an eternal Eden. You see, our first father, Adam, who was made from the ground, failed to obey God's will and was banished from that garden. But the second Adam from heaven obeyed God's will perfectly in the garden so that we can dwell forever in a better garden, never wanting for anything and always enjoying God's perfect provision that will never get old and never run dry. One of the questions I think I, I get all the time about, uh, about heaven, or you, know, you ask, like, what, is, what do you think is the best part about heaven? And maybe in my youth, I may have asked you, it may be answered, you know, I think the no homework, that'll be nice in heaven. Um, or, or maybe the prospect of flying was very exciting for me. Uh, but I'm sure I've heard many people say, you know, they're looking forward to seeing loved ones or being free from chronic pain. Right? There are plenty of things that we will enjoy in heaven, but the source, the heart of all these joys comes from being with our Savior Jesus. And that brings us to our last point. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will experience God's perfect presence. Friends, the, the reason all sin and suffering will be gone, the reason we'll experience all the peace and protection and provision in the new heavens and the new earth when it comes is because God will be there. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will share his perfect and unveiled presence with us forever. Look back at 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. At one point in the Garden of Eden, God and man dwelt together in unhindered fellowship. But when sin entered the world, man's fellowship of God was broken, and they were cut off from his presence. And as we read through the Old Testament, We see that God's glory and presence is made visible to the Israelites, but very differently than it was in the garden, right? Scripture tells that God chose to dwell in a localized place in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and specifically in a room called the Holy of Holies. And only one guy, the high priest, could enter into the presence of God once a year in order to make atonement for the sinful people. What's fascinating is that in 1 Kings 6, we read that the Holy of Holies built in Solomon's temple was a perfect cube, meaning its length and width and height are all equal. And if you notice when we were reading that the city that was measured, its length and its width and its height were also equal. It too is a perfect cube. So what is God, what is John trying to tell us here? I think the reason why there is no city, there's no temple in this city is because the whole city, 
The whole earth is God's temple, perfectly filled with God's presence and glory. God's presence never not being veiled to us anymore. We'll never have questions anymore of whether or not God is good because we will see him as he is and we will enjoy perfect fellowship with our creator as we were always created to enjoy. My brothers and sisters, those who long to see your Savior face to face can rest assured that this day is coming. For we saw that these words are trustworthy and true. Verse 6, he says, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Friends, it is done echoes the words of Jesus, the Lamb on the cross, when he cried, it is finished. Because Jesus died and is now reigning, we can be assured that this glorious vision is to be ours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters who are weighed down by sin and suffering, weighed down by the brokenness of this world, weighed down with doubt, God is reminding you today that he is preparing for you a perfect place, full of God's perfect peace, God's perfect people, God's perfect provision, and God's perfect presence. And friends, one day you shall see him. And one day you will be like him. And one day you will have eyes that see that the sufferings of this present time were not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to you. I know we're not out of time, but I think it's, I want to end to read you a little excerpt from the journeys of Christian and hopeful and the pilgrim's progress as they cross the river of death and into eternal glory. May the Lord use it to encourage you as you make your way to your heavenly home. Now the current in this river floats swift and quite strong and hopeful swam well. Christian struggled to swim on. As thoughts of past sins flooded his heart with regret and the promise of forgiveness, he began to forget. I am sinking, I am drowning. Please help, Christian cried. Keep swimming, I see the gate, hopeful, hopefully replied. We will soon be received into glory, my friend. God has promised that this river will not be our end. This dark river of death may pull us apart, but death is not the end. It is merely a new start. Look to Jesus by whom your sin's burden was taken, for he promises that you will never be forsaken. Oh, I see him again. He is closer than before. So they passed on and crossed over to that bright golden shore. Now most say that none who cross the river of death survive, but after crossing, these two had never been more alive. From the shore they heard the roar of loud cheering crowds in the city of glory, which stretched up to the clouds. They could hear with the cheers heavenly trumpets that sounded, and they ran toward the gate, both amazed and astounded. Of this bright place we've both been told, our heads crowned with glory and the streets made of gold. An endless kingdom, everlasting life, no sorrows, no sadness, suffering, or strife. Here are angels and saints who have gone before, and the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love and adore. From where we began, it sounded too good to be true. Nevertheless, we progressed to see all things made new. Unimaginable things which now dazzle our eyes, but the Lord of this kingdom himself is our prize. 
Immortality will now be the robe that we wear. We will reign with our King, and in His glory we'll share. All our lives we've desired to arrive here and sing of the glory and the grace of Christ Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father, this journey of faith that we are on is hard, and our hearts groan for you to make all things new, especially as we see the brokenness of this world and the brokenness that comes into our own homes and our hearts. And so we ask that you would help us to persevere to the very end. Would you use this vision of the glory that is to come to help us run the race of faith and not give up? And as we wait for you to bring our eternal home, would you help us labor for the things that last? Give us hearts that do not seek after the things of earth, but the things that will last until our forever home. All glory be to you, Christ, our King. Amen.